Good evening, it is 5 p.m. and you're listening to Today in YGK on CFRC 11.9 FM. Brought to you by CFRC's News Collective, Christina Laurie, Dinah Jansen, Erica Singh, Zayden Vergara, Katrina Johnston, and Mia Lettinen. CFRC's news programming is also brought to you through the support of the Local Journalism Initiative, Queen's University, and What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street. I'm Christina Laurie and here are your local news headlines. To start us off this week, we have a segment with Dinah Jansen discussing the impact of tech giant Meta, ending news availability on Canadian platforms in response to Bill C-118, featuring interviews with local news outlet The Kingstonist. Thanks so much. Earlier this summer, Meta, the tech giant that owns Instagram and Facebook, responded to Bill C-18, Canada's Online News Act, by ending news availability on its platforms in Canada. For news publishers and broadcasters like CFRC News Links and all non-news content posted to both Instagram and Facebook is no longer viewable by people in Kingston and the rest of the country. At the same time, people in Canada are no longer able to view or share news content on Facebook and Instagram, including news articles and audiovisual content posted by news outlets. CFRC caught up with Chris Valela and Tori Stafford of the local online news publisher The Kingstonist to learn more about the impact of Meta's response to C18 on local engagement with The Kingstonist's news content. Yeah, maybe we can start off. Tell us about yourselves and your role with The Kingstonist. Tori, can we start with you? Sure. Uh- so um, I am editor-in-chief at Kingstonist, uh, and I think it's been about five and a half years. Would you say that, Chris? Okay, good. <laughs> Not the greatest with my numbers, but uh, about five and a half years ago is when um, when we purchased Kingstonist um, uh, from, there was a, a, in between the original Kingstonist owners and us, there was another owner of, um, of what was more of a community blog at that point. Um, definitely a lot of news content and certainly a resource that a lot of people were tapping into uh, locally at that point. Um, and so the original founders were uh, Harold Card and uh, Danielle Lennon. Um, and uh, we ended up buying it from the person that purchased it um, from them, uh, I think within a few months of that. Uh, and that that particular uh Ownership in the in 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 between was uh, a little bit of a, a wild wild ride, but uh, we kind of got everything back to uh, being more based on uh, Kingston and what what people wanted to know more about in Kingston, what people were concerned about in Kingston, uh, and basically uh, the idea that uh, Kingston needed its own independent news source. Um, Chris and I both worked uh, for Metroland Media um, through the Kingston Heritage and the Frontenac Gazette, uh, which were both very um, quickly shuttered without um, without more than two hours notice. Um, it, and uh, what happened after that was the complete uh, removal of the website that the, uh, the editor at both of those publications, uh, Holly Pratt Campbell, had been building for uh, probably about six or eight years at that point. Um, and, and had doing a very good job of creating um, that there was that whole time where the adaptation of the newspaper to an online format was, was difficult and getting advertisers to come over to that side was also really difficult. It wasn't something that, uh, that people really were all that intrigued or engaged about. Uh, a lot of people just kind of were going with the, their default on um, advertising and print media at that point. And uh, so 
she had really and and her whole team there had really conquered a lot of that and it was it was a very very great resource for our community which unfortunately no longer exists um apart from there are copies of all of the papers in the Kingston Frontenac Public Library Central Branch. Um, but otherwise, you can't find a vast majority of that content online at all, uh, unless it was picked up by another publication in syndication through Metroland. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that picture was both devastating, um, obviously, for just the, the personal reasons of being involved in it and watching all that work just disappear. But it's more shocking and frightening from um, an overall journalistic standpoint that the idea of things being on the record didn't mean much when you could just make it all go away. Um, and that, that, that was a, a all very scary prospect. Uh, and, and the idea that we could suddenly find ourselves in Kingston without any news source because someone else had decided to at a major corporation uh, and someone not within our city or even area um, just the uh, daunting and and terrifying. So um, the the two of us, Chris and I, uh, uh, we, we joined forces with uh, AJ Kielty, who uh, was actually the one that kind of spearheaded us all sitting down. So we have to give uh, much kudos to him there. Um, and and looking at making an online entity that was an independent news source, um, and uh, what, having just lost our our other positions. Chris and I had some time on our hands to do that. And I don't know that Chris ever has time on his hands to be <laughs> completely fair. Uh, the, the running of Make It Home YGK uh, online as well, which I'm sure Chris can tell you about how that has been impacted as well. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a full-time job if he wants and lets it <laughs> be. But uh, um, certainly with, uh, with, with my background and the uh, over a decade I've spent in local news uh, and, and work that Chris had have been doing and then moving into uh, reporting and, and writing um, with the Kingston Heritage, um, both of us were kind of able to hit the ground running and it was a very, it was very prime opportunity for us to uh, to take over Kingston as luckily it was um, for sale and, uh, and available. And so we were able to do that and uh, slowly but surely build our way to uh, becoming I guess the entity we are now, it was very slow and sure, but especially on our end when we knew all the things that we wanted to be able to, uh, to conquer and get, get going. And, and that's just the, the nature of our work, right? It never ends. So you always want to be able to do better, more, faster. <laughs> um, but that, uh, that puts me at, uh, in my position where I lead our, our reporters uh, through assignments. A lot of those brought to me by our readers or uh, our awesome team of writers and contributors who have their finger on the pulse of all sorts of different niche aspects in Kingston, as well as just the, the general, what word on the street is, what are people talking about? Um, and I credit a lot of uh, our readership to, to that awesome team that we, that we work with, because I don't think we could do it without a single one of them. Really. Um, we all work together like a well-oiled machine, although we have our squeaks, don't we all? <laughs> Thank you very much. Now over to Chris. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your role and uh, anything else you'd like to add about the evolution and history of the Kingstonist itself. Yeah, so um, where uh, Tori takes care of all things uh, on the editorial side, I take care of all of the things on the 
financial and technological side. Uh, so from making sure that the website is is up and working smoothly and is legible and, and all of those kinds of things to make sure that uh, over over time we can we can pay our our various bills and are continuing to grow in a, in a, a sustainable way. Fantastic, fantastic. And and you do have a, a staff of other folks too, some contributors, some writers, uh, uh, some uh, business f- partner or business people as well out there in the community uh, rustling up advertising. <laughs> yeah, we've, uh, we've got a, a great uh, small team. Uh, we've been uh, growing surely, but um, slowly, but surely, as they say. Uh, with uh, with Jessica and Michelle and Dylan as uh, integral parts of our full time team, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, then other individuals who uh, contribute on a part time basis as they're uh, as they're able. Well, that's fantastic, and and it just goes to show this is a small town community organization as well. This isn't a big corporate media conglomerate where you have. 30 people working in the sales division, for example, you might have one or two people and and some people working across a few <laughs> desks by the sounds of it. That's right. exactly yeah. right. I, I think that, you know, that that was an integral uh, and very important uh, point that we wanted to make sure that we maintained throughout. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when when we experienced the the loss of all of the work that we did, uh, over so many years, um, as Tori said, just at the press of a button, um, yeah. you know, a decision that was made uh, in another in another community uh, by individuals who, you know, didn't have a vested interest in maintaining that uh, that history. And, uh, you know, many, many years of, of hard work were lost at that point. And we we wanted to make sure that no matter what happened elsewhere, um, that the stories that people had trusted us with would uh, would be maintained. Indeed, indeed, and and in fact, too, we still see uh, continued uh, closure of uh, local media organizations, not only in Kingston but elsewhere across the country too. Uh, the, the the Kingston Whig Standard no longer has an office in Kingston anymore. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I worked for the Whig Standard um, for a number of years uh, as a freelance contributor through college uh, and uh, on staff for uh, a number of, well, not that many years, less years than I've been doing this, um, and was a victim of uh, actually a couple of layoffs um, because I came back after one layoff and then ended up laid off again uh, at the week. The, the, the idea of the, quote, longest continuously published newspaper in the world <laughs> not having bricks and mortar is a bit, um, it's a bit astounding. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's not that you can't work virtually and there are, there are some great folks at, at the living standard that, that do some great work as well. Uh, they, they can work virtually. It just, uh, it's considering that there are buildings that are very synonymous with the wig name in Kingston, um, two very prominent buildings that people associate with, uh, with the wig. It's, it's, very very sad to watch uh that disappear uh, particularly when like particularly in in the the old woolen mill site like they had some of their old relic printers and um like boxes of leading for laying out actual pages with lead and things like that that you could see safely <laughs> behind <laughs> the plastic no longer like, giving you um some cancerous fumes um but uh 
you know, it's it just that all of that being lost is just um, so significant and speaks so so uh, so strongly to just how easily that can happen. And I, I don't think people think about that very often. Um, probably one of the only things that uh, C18 has made me really happy about. Uh, people are really, really looking at how much media works and what legacy media is and what corporate media is and, and where the people come from that, that make our news, if you will. So there, there is that about it, but I mean, you know, when you see, when you see something like uh, someone like the Whig standard go without an office, it's, I don't want to see that for any of us. I don't want to see that for any uh, reporters ever. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's just that's very pro reporter right so well from the broadcast field when we're looking at broadcast news media and and uh ctv cbc all of these varying stations or or, and chorus entertainment etc letting go of their uh on-air and research talent uh their journalists uh, all over the place, almost all the time. And then, of course, too, you have your your other radios for us in radio, where you have radio stations where they're local DJs that spin your like, morning drive music are, are disappearing all over the place to the point where, you know, uh, like there are stations in places like Wawa, Ontario, where their news content is being produced out of Toronto. So how are you supposed yeah. to get local news in Wawa if your morning DJ at like maybe one of the only stations around is actually right. somebody working in a studio in TO. Yeah. And that's just, that's exactly right. You know, the, the, the local journalists at the Whig standard, every single one of them are, you know, they're consummate professionals, hard workers. Uh, they're, they're really amazing uh, reporters. Um, the issue is that their work is then, um, you know, it's, it's all between syndicated content that comes from other communities Mm -hmm. and, you know, the opinion pieces of pundits who are not in Kingston and don't know what the important issues are in Kingston and uh, maybe have vested interests in persuading uh, Kingstonians of something that is not in the best interest of Kingstonians. And, um, and, and so, you know, when we, when we publish, an opinion piece, first of all, it's never our opinion. It's always something that is from a community member. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we 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 take it to heart and and very it's very important to us that it's always something that is reflective of the Kingston community. Um, that it's never a pundit from you know somewhere else um, that, that doesn't actually have you know, their uh, finger on the pulse of of the community that we're serving. Indeed, indeed. All right, so um, let's let's segue now into uh, some conversation specifically about C eighteen and uh, and Meta's response, particularly uh, the impact on local media resources, uh, not only CFRC but also yourselves, the Kingstonist. Uh, what what is for our listeners out there and for your own readers? Do <laughs> what is C eighteen and what was Meta's response in a nutshell? Uh, so C-18 was a bill that the government of Canada uh, put into legislation that essentially asks uh, the two um, large conglomerates, uh, Meta and Google, uh, to pay a fair share of the revenue that they derive from the work of journalists uh, to those journalists. 
so um, you know, Google uh, News um, is 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 one of the um, first places that a lot of people will go to 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 see what has been happening in their community over the the, the course of the past twenty four hours. Mm-hmm. And same thing with Facebook. You know, people log in on uh, multiple multiple times a day. Uh, to Facebook to see what their friends and family and colleagues are doing, as well as what's happening in their community. Yeah. And so um, the intent of the legislation was uh, to, to provide some of the revenue that those entities derive from the advertising uh, that they, they provide uh, to those that are providing that, uh, that content, that are, are producing that content. And uh, the reaction um, from Meta at this point has been to turn off access to Canadians uh, to uh, uh, news content. Uh, Google's reaction up until now has been uh, somewhat more muted. They, they've indicated that their position is that the legislation is flawed, um, just as, as Meta um, has indicated, but they haven't taken any steps other than a few uh, tests that they've been doing in the in the background, which have been very limited in scope, uh, but they haven't taken the same step that Meta or or, or Facebook um, has in in turning it off altogether. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And now let's hear about the impact that this turn off has actually had on organizations like yours. You are you are a web based media outlet. How important is presence on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and ultimately Google important for the Kingstonist as a web-based news organization? You know, if this had been uh, uh, done five years ago or so, I think, or even four years ago, I think it would have had a a much more significant impact on us. We've worked really, really hard over the course of the last three to four years, knowing that something was going to be coming down the pipeline. We didn't know that it was going to be this, mm-hmm. um, but we're we're kind of you know we're kind of the the ant at the picnic, and and um, we can be squashed at any point in time by the Googles and the Facebooks of of the world. And so we knew that at some point, some change in the algorithm that these entities use. Uh, would have uh, possibly made it uh, just not workable, uh, an untenable situation. And so we've worked over the course of the last three to four years really, really hard to diversify the way that we've been uh, providing access to our readers. Mm-hmm. And so you know, we've got a Twitter account and a Mastodon account. Um, we we provide access to our, our information via Reddit and a number of other different ways, uh, including a, a daily newsletter. Um, and so um, it, it's it's still it's still a significant impact, um, but it's not anywhere near the death knell that uh, it might be for. Uh, news organizations that didn't do the work of diversifying and understanding that um, you know they're in it to 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 make money um, and to maximize that that opportunity for revenue, mm-hmm. uh, and if that means making an algorithm change, but that by virtue of you know one piece of code completely negates the access for a particular news organization, that's going to be incidental to them. They won't even notice it, right? Um, and so uh, it's it, I, I, we're very, very fortunate that we've been doing that work. 
And I really feel for any uh, news organization that that hadn't been doing that. Um, and uh, because that that impact would have been really, really significant for them. Indeed. Tori, do you have anything to add? Um, I mean, those are, and I have to give credit where credit's due. It's one of my, my favorite things to do. Uh, the Chris and, and AJ's foresight, I'm always just focused on getting the next story out. So I sometimes need people to like pull me back and see things uh, from a, a bigger standpoint. And they were very, very quick uh, to to say right from the get-go that we couldn't depend on social media as our our vehicle. That's that's not our vehicle. We're the vehicle. Mm-hmm. We, we, we bring the media uh, to other people. And um, so uh, that and the fact that there are a lot of our readers and supporters that take the time to understand what, what support looks like for media. Uh, I, it's shocking to me the amount of people that do not understand that ad revenue is the... the the big catalyst for most of us getting paid. Um, and that's just part of the model. I assumed that people understood. Uh, this has brought a lot of light to that. Um, and at the same time, it, it has shown a lot of people that they can't just idly take in the news without some sort of signing up for something and supporting um, in some way, be that financial or, or otherwise, right? Um, but uh, I, I, I'm very pleased with the amount of positive feedback that we've got from our readers um, and supporters, the, the people that are, are trying to encourage us to stick with it and, and know that they're, that they're there still reading um, every day. And, uh, and that's kind of that uh, fuel that we need in our fire to keep us going. And, and we're not going to, to slow down anytime soon, that's for sure. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so what has, uh, what do you think the impact of uh, less access for community members uh, to uh, news on Meta uh, so far is uh, overall, whether it's for the Kingston, Kingston specifically, but overall being able to access whatever news that they want? What do you think? It's a little shocking in terms of how much slower people find out about things. Um, that that in and of itself has really kind of shocked me. Um, and the whole screenshotting of an article and then putting it on the Facebook and completely defying the purpose of, of the idea in the first place is a bit uh, alarming as well, but it, that kind of comes in to that, that factor where people don't realize that clicks are money in that there's advertising and that's the same thing as a newspaper. It's just online, right? Um, but uh, it, it is very uh, alarming to me just how little people seem to know, mostly about uh, like national news, um, things happening on the other side of the country that people just don't really know about. I didn't realize that people don't go to the websites of their trusted news sources throughout the day. It is what I do all day, right? So it's uh, it, it's a bit of a, a shock for me, um, uh, specifically like talking to family members that just have no idea what's going on in Ontario at all, like that are living on like the West Coast day, right? It's just, it's very odd to see that, that but it is, does speak to the need for community news because people are turning to the people that they know and trust, right? As opposed to just getting it from whomever is sharing whatever they want to share with 
normally some sort of catty comment. <laughs> but 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 sharing is even problematic now. We've had one listener reporting where they were just trying to share some news that they found on BBC on their Facebook page. Oh, this is an interesting story. But the the share of a, a, a news source from the UK was uh, was blocked on their on their own personal page. So crazy. So crazy. <laughs> it is very difficult to wrap your mind around why it affects international news for all Canadians. That part of it is, but at the same time, it is a massive ask uh, of someone like Meta to try and wade through that and figure out what is Canadian news and what's a subsidiary of something that is international. It's it's a it's a very confusing. Um, like trying to figure out where everything actually, what actually belongs to what, right? Uh, but I mean, it, the idea that we can't just share international news is wild to me. But I mean, hey, find another platform. <laughs> but but let but let's tease this out a little bit more, and I'd love to hear from you, Chris, uh, on this as well. Um, you know, what does this suggest about social media as a platform for uh, you know average everyday people to discuss online? Uh, how they feel about a particular local issue, national, international issue. You know, you can do that in other places like Twitter in a very finite amount of space, or you could do that in places like Reddit where you can you know, write treatises there, I guess. But uh, social media itself is a place where people do debate, sometimes in rather, you know, untoward ways, maybe, but uh, they debate issues or at least share some information. But what does this suggest? What particular dangers are there for right here in our own community, for example, if there's less ability for people to actually be able to converse about what's happening right here in the city of Kingston? Some decision that city council has made could be, you know, kind of a big deal. And there's less opportunities for people to be able to share the information now. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I you know, I think people are going to continue to have those conversations and be able to share it. Um, and one of the things that Facebook um, and other social media sites have been criticized and fairly so, I think, for a long time is that they they propagate misinformation. And I think that the fact that they are turning off the taps to reliable sources of information is going to accelerate that proliferation of misinformation. And so those conversations are not going to stop. People will still be talking about politics. They'll be still talking about health issues. Mm -hmm. um, they'll continue to be having those conversations without the ability to link to reliable sources of that information. Um, and it's um, and I think that what that's going to do is it's going to to make it even harder for people to know fact from fiction. It's going to make it easier for those who are trolling or uh, are willfully um, trying to misinform people on particular subjects. It's actually going to accelerate the opportunities for that. Hmm. And, you know, I think that's that's one of the things that's made Facebook's business model so incredible incredibly profitable um, is that it's actually shifted most of the burden of, of the running of the company onto its users, right? It's, it's users supply the content, they curate that content. Um, users even have to moderate the responses of the, the content that, that is there, right? So everything is user generated um, and, and, and 
as anybody who has ever tried to report something that has been, you know, hate speech or misinformation, if you try to report something on, on Facebook, it's, it's virtually a, a placebo button, right? It doesn't work. Um, it never goes anywhere. Um, I've never seen something that I've, I've reported, no matter how blatantly obvious it was that it, it fell afoul of their own guidelines. Um, it's never led anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think that the steps that they're taking now, and hopefully it's, it's just a temporary negotiating tactic, I think that what they're doing now is going to make that even more so than it than it was before. Okay. All right. So now what do you think community members can do in the meantime and how in the meantime can they still find the Kingstonist and keep up to date with the latest in local news from you? Well, the site's not going anywhere. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Kingstonist.com will be there and uh, it's uh, a pretty searchable as well, which is a lovely uh, thing about, uh, about our site. You can, key in whatever it is that you're looking for into the searching and you'll you'll bring up probably more than you were looking for and maybe find some more stuff that you're interested in um but i mean uh our twitter account is constantly uh letting people know um what's new what's just come out uh and also refreshing from the previous day letting people know what we've been covering over the last uh, few days just to try and keep that information going out there but uh Definitely, I think the, the best thing to do is, is to support the news organizations that you trust by going directly to their website. And I, like that's kind of been my baseline on that because I think it's the simplest uh, solution and the easiest thing to do. Uh, if you want to read the news and talk about it, you can talk about it without linking out and you can do that on whatever platform you want. But go to the, the sites you trust um, and, and hear directly from the people that you trust to bring you the news. That's, that's, uh, I think, I think the best solution really. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else to add before we wrap up folks? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to take the opportunity, um, just to talk, to respond a little bit to Meta's, uh, perspective and, and what they've been trying to say from their end. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, by virtue of their own platform, they they've had plenty of opportunity to uh, to to bend the ears of its of its uh, users, and uh, so I I just you know that Meta has said that less than three percent of its overall content is is uh, links to news articles. Um, that's an interesting way to word it, right? Less than three percent of its content. Um, but another way to say that is that almost 3% of all meta content is links to news articles. And when you think about the revenue that meta makes um, on an annual basis, you know, in Canada alone, it's, it was $12.5 billion in revenue that it derived uh, from, uh, from its use. So, uh, you know, that's about $375 million a year in revenue. Uh, that you can directly attribute to Canadian news content. So that's what they make by the almost 3% of, of link sharing, $375 million per year. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that's, that's you know, the, the, the way that they've worded it makes it seem really, really small. But when you actually break it down, it's it's huge. And the Canadian government says that 
Facebook should pay about $62 million a year. They just said that last week, they did their calculations and they said that a fair percentage, a fair amount of $62 million per year to, to news providers. That's only about 16 and a half percent of that $375 million that, uh, that Facebook has made over the course of the last year. Um, you know, I think reasonable people can come to different opinions, different numbers on what they think is, is um, a fair amount, what a, a fair percentage is. Um, but I do think that the professionals who work hard every day to create that news content uh, should be reasonably compensated for that that content, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, is it sixteen and a half percent of that revenue? Is it you know three hundred and seventy five million of that three hundred seventy five million? I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Um, but I, I I certainly think it should be greater than zero. Um, you know, a lot of people say that news organizations and journalists should be happy with the exposure that they um you know that they provide to those journalists exposure is uh, my favorite meal yeah right exactly <laughs> you know exposure is what you die from right um and and uh they've very clearly derived a financial benefit uh from the work that journalists are are, are doing um and other professionals it's not just journalists right? right and i think that that's what they're afraid of is that um people are going to start seeing that there are lots and lots of professionals who are putting in hard work uh, that Meta and Google are benefiting from and not providing it. Um, you know, imagine if Netflix, um, you know, all of a sudden said, yeah, we're going to provide all of these actors and, and uh, directors uh, with just exposure, we're not going to pay a cent for the content <laughs> we're providing. Right? Well, that's pretty. Imagine aren't they are kind of already on strike for a while. Well, they, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's 100%. Imagine if we said to, to, to artists oh. that, you know, we're going to be playing your music and we're not going to be providing you with any compensation. We'll just provide you with the exposure, right? right? I think if we put it in those terms, people can see the injustice of that that exposure is not um, is not a reasonable compensation for the work that's that's been done. Um, and, and in some ways, I think it's maybe a little bit harder to see that uh, from the perspective of journalists, but it's exactly the same, right? That hard work has been done. It should be compensated. Indeed. For. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I think that's about a wrap. Uh, so thank you very much to Chris and Tori of the Kingstonist for joining us here, right here on CFRC to chat about CAT Meta and its response and some of the impacts uh, for the Kingstonist and other local news organizations around Canada. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, and thank you for everything that uh, CFRC does for Kingston. Uh, we're, it's, uh, we're a richer, a much richer place because of uh, the things that that CFRC brings to our ears and uh, and I'm grateful for that so thank you Absolutely. Thanks so much to Chris Valela and Tori Stafford of the Kingstonist for joining us. And thanks for tuning into this segment. To learn more about the Kingstonist, check out the full Today in YGK podcast available on Spotify and Apple Music. And of course, you can visit thekingstonist.com and subscribe to its newsletters and stories to learn more about Kingston and region news every single day. Now over to Chris Laurie with more in local news. 
Thank you, Dinah, and be sure to listen to the full-length version of that story on our podcast network at podcast.cfrc.ca under Today in YGK. Next up in your local news headlines, we have some new programming announced by the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Read It and Reap, introducing KFPL's 1,000 Books Before Kindergarten Challenge. September is an exciting month not just for school-age kids, but for the littlest members of Kingston Frontenac, from newborns to preschoolers too. Thanks to the generous support of the Friends of the Library, KFPL is launching a new reading challenge, 1,000 Books Before Kindergarten. The initiative also known as 1BBK, is simple but makes a big difference. Caregivers are challenged to read a thousand books with their children before they step into the world of kindergarten. 1BBK is not just about reaching a numerical target, it's about building a solid foundation for each child's future success in literacy, education, and life. It's an excellent way for kids and their grown-ups to bond, and it comes at the perfect time. Early childhood is a period of incredible brain development, and early exposure to language has a profound impact. In a quote from Brianne Peters, a librarian, she states, don't be daunted by the number. Reaching this goal is within your reach, and we're here to help. Establishing a daily reading habit is key. Reading three books a day for one year gets you to over 1,000 books, and even just one book a day for three years accomplishes the same. You can read one book or multiple books each day. It's up to you." End quote. KFPL provides a user-friendly logging tool, Beanstack, to track reading progress at kfpl.beanstack.com. Anyone who joined the TD Summer Reading Program this year already has an account. For anyone who prefers a physical chart, copies are available at any KFPL branch or can be printed at home. A love of reading is not the only prize. When family reach the halfway mark at 500 books. They can claim a free book bag, and upon completing all 1,000 books, they will receive a certificate and another special prize. For more information about 1BBK and to get started, you can visit kfpl.ca. Solar Spotlight. Learn with KFPL, Queens, and the McDonald Institute in advance of the October eclipse. Solar eclipses are awe-inspiring natural phenomena that provide an excellent opportunity for sky watchers and astronomy enthusiasts to witness the beauty and wonder of our universe. An opportunity soon coming with a solar eclipse crossing North, Central, and South America on October 14th. To enhance the experience, KFPL will host Queens University and the McDonald Institute for Standing in the Shadow of the Moon, an exploration of the history and mechanics of eclipses. Professors Darren LaHue and Sarah Sadovoy will explore the significance of this natural wonder, offering attendees an understanding of the influence of eclipses on culture and belief systems, as well as the physical circumstances that make eclipses possible. This event takes place on October 4th at 6pm at the Isabel Turner branch. You can register at calendar.kfpl.ca. For aspiring young astronomers ages 6 to 12, KFPL is also offering an opportunity to create solar eclipse projectors in partnership with Queens to support safe viewing. The program is happening on October 7th at 2pm at the Calvin Park branch with registration opening on September 23rd at calendar.kfpl.ca. In a message from the City of Kingston, the final giveaway day of 2023 is Saturday, September 23rd. Next Saturday, September 23rd is giveaway day, the day you put out items you no longer want that neighbors might like to rehome. This is the last giveaway day for 2023. Adam Mueller, supervisor of Solid Waste, states, If your items still have some life left in them, consider giving them away on giveaway day. Giveaway days are an effective and unique way to reduce waste in Kingston. When you pick up free, gently used items, you save them from landfill and reduce the waste associated with packaging and the greenhouse gas emissions associated with manufacturing new goods. It's also a good way for community members to save money. You can share pictures of your giveaway day items on Instagram or Twitter at hashtag WasteNotYGK. The following are some giveaway day guidelines. Only set out appropriate items that you know someone else will want. Appropriate items may include books, CDs, DVDs, furniture and small appliances, electronics, construction materials, kitchen gadgets, dishes, cutlery, pots and pans, and yes, unwanted gifts. The Consumer Product Safety Bureau of Canada advises that baby walkers, cribs, car seats, strollers, playpens, bags, 
bath seats, mattresses, blinds, and toys are not appropriate. How to put items out. Place items at curb in front of your home. Place stickers or signs on the items with the word free. Ensure any items that you do not want taken are kept away from items placed at the curb. At the end of the day, bring any uncollected items back into your home. Consider donating them to a local charity. How to pick items up. Respect other people's property. Do not walk on lawns or gardens. Take only the items that are marked free and placed at the curb. Don't leave previously picked up items on the curb at other people's property. You can find the full list of guidelines at cityofkingston.ca slash giveaway. That wraps up your local news headlines for this week, and next up is your sports desk with Zayden Vergara. Good evening, everyone. My name is Zayden Vergara, and it's time for your CFRC Sports Update. It was an explosive weekend for your Queen's University Golden Gales. On Saturday, the women's rugby team was on the road taking on the Western Mustangs, fighting to keep their perfect record. Maggie Banks led Queens with two tries, and Lizzie Gibson had five converts and one penalty convert for 13 points. When the dust settled, Queens managed to keep their perfect record, winning 53-0. This is the third straight win without allowing a single try to be scored, giving them the record of 3-0 and a combined score of 260-0. The women's soccer team was on the road this weekend for the game against the Trent Excalibur. Trent was quick to put a point on the board, but Queens would continue to bounce back with a beautiful goal from number 9, Marissa Gravel, to keep the game tied at the half. In the second half, the Golden Gale did not relent and continued to send a flurry of shots towards the Excalibur's net, finishing the game 4-1. Queens registered 20 shots and 11 corners compared to Trent's 2 shots and 0 corners. With the win, the Gales remain undefeated 5-0-0. On that note, that's all for your CFRC Sports Update. Now over to Erica Singh with all your campus news. Thank you, Zayden. Last week, I had the opportunity to meet with a part of the presidential team of the Alma Mater Society, or as most people call it, the AMS. The AMS is the Central Undergraduate Student Association at Queen's. Founded in 1858, the AMS is also the oldest organization of its kind in Canada. Here are the VP of Operations and the VP of Undergraduate Affairs. Hi guys, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you? So excited to be here. I'm great, thank you. I love your energy. So can I please have you to introduce yourself? Of course, my name is Michelle Hudson. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the Alma Mater Society Vice President of Operations. And hi, my name is Victoria Mills, although most people just call me Vic. I use she, her pronouns. I'm the AMS's Vice President of University Affairs. All right, thank you so much. Can the two of you please tell us how you became involved with the AMS throughout your undergraduate studies here at Queen's? Of course. So um, kind of getting involved in the AMS. So actually getting involved physically was my job at Wacom. It's one of our student safe walk services. It's an amazing service. I highly recommend checking it out. A great way to walk home safe, have make some friends and you know get to where you're going safely. Um, beyond that, however, I did use the health and dental plan first, so I guess that would kind of be my first touch point with the AMS. However, I would say the first kind of concrete thing was with walk home. Awesome. Um, I think for my involvement, I sort of got involved as I suppose an everyday student would. I think it was more so interacting with the AMS services, such like getting my coffee at Kogo every morning before I kind of get to class. Um, but I think out of the three of us, I think I'm the only one who never had a job with the AMS beforehand. So I was a little bit more external, um, but I was very eager to get involved. So what are some goals and priorities you have for the upcoming terms? 
Ooh, so one of mine I can say with the services is, you know, bringing back that student involvement and just front-facing of the services and also catering to kind of the new student every day. Um, we've seen a huge difference in how students interact with our student services, whether that be preferring online um, aspects, for example, tricolor, shopping online, um, and kind of working what we can do to see there to make sure we can make our services available for all students in a way that they would like to consume it. Um, I suppose within my role, because I am more so involved in the governance end of the society and with all the commissions, I think I really want to see the visibility of them increased um, because all the commissions are student facing and they are there ultimately to serve students. We want to ensure that we're doing that kind of in the best ways possible. Um, and like Michelle said, kind of catering to the needs of students and how that ebbs and flows, particularly after the pandemic and a lot of the commissions going um, underneath shifts in terms of management as well as like overall activity. I think we have a lot of growth opportunity there. Uh, I think, for instance, with the Clubs Commission, because we have an incredible amount of ratified clubs, in fact, one of the highest numbers, I believe, in North America, we're able to offer things like professional development, we're able to offer hiring club fairs and ensure that we're presenting opportunities to students, perhaps by which they wouldn't have been aware of in the past. Um, the AMS has an incredible amount to offer students. We want to make sure that we're keeping that front facing and we let individuals know the opportunities that can await them. Because because if you're someone like me, I waited a little bit too long to get involved, but now I'm very happy that I have. And can I just walk us through what the commissions are and what types of commissions there are? Yeah, for sure. Um, so within the AMS this year, there are six commissions. I'm going to list them all off on my fingers, and there are seven commissioners. So first, there is the Commission of Campus Affairs, which primarily deals with the event sanctioning process, um, as well as a few front-facing initiatives, such as the harm reduction um, food trucks on homecoming and St. Patrick's Day. There is next the Commission of External Affairs, which is focused on advocacy, both municipal, provincial, and federal. Uh, we are involved in one provincial lobby group called USA and one federal lobby group called UCRU, so that takes up a large part of their portfolio, as well as with the Academic Grievance Center, Housing Resource Center, and Government Affairs Manager. Uh, the next one is the Commission of Environmental Sustainability, which focuses on all facets of sustainability on campus. Um, most recently, it's actually worked with the services quite a bit. We just made a, a big donation to the food bank um, from the Lettuce Love Gardens that are grown right outside of LaSalle. Um, so there's some cool projects coming up there. Next one is the Commission of Clubs, which I suppose is more so self-explanatory. It serves for all the AMS ratified clubs on campus. There is next the Commission of Social Issues. We have two commissioners for that one, both um, the Social Commi Issues Commissioner External and the Social Issues Commissioner Internal, um, which is our equity-based commission, and they do an incredible um, amount of work, not only kind of within the AMS, but as well as external. And then finally, we have the Commission of Orientation, which is colloquially known as um, Orientation Roundtable, which is the support and oversight body for faculty orientation. Victoria, you previously mentioned to me that you were a student in life sciences. Um, Michelle, what faculty are you from? Um, currently, I am in biopsych, so kind of arts and science there. Mm. All right. And how has your experiences as an undergraduate student in these two faculties influenced your decision to become a student leader? I guess seeing how involved everyone is and also knowing the amazing community behind it. My program is quite small, so as soon as you see someone, it's like, oh my gosh, immediate friends and just kind of working with each other and going there. And I think that's really the spirit of Queens and also getting involved. So kind of like meeting those amazing connections 
and going through towards student life is something that you carry with you and it's something that's really special to Queens as well. Um, so kind of having that and seeing how well everyone interacts with each other, it's kind of an easy shift to student leadership because that's basically your friends, you're doing amazing things you care about, amazing projects and working really well together. Um, I think for me, because Michelle and I are both of them the faculty of arts and science, it is the largest faculty on campus. I think this year it had, I think, just about half of the incoming class, I'm quite sure. Um, but anyway, it, it is a very large faculty, and I found that sometimes, especially in the earlier years, um, as we got into the pandemic, it was a bit harder to find community because there are so many students, and there's always a lot going on, but it was a bit harder to sort of differentiate what we wanted to be involved in and where we you know, sort of found the people I think we resonate with the most. So I suppose that I became a student leader through that drive to be able to find this community, I believe, like akin to Michelle and being able to um, not only find it, but as well as create it for other individuals who are perhaps looking or even not just so they stumble upon you know, the opportunity. All right. And this kind of goes off my last question, but um, how do you plan to kind of strengthen interfaculty relations and promote collaboration between the faculties this year? Ooh, I think I can start with uh, something that we did recently. Um, we're always excited to visit and come say hi. So something that we recently had the amazing opportunity to do was go around for <laughs> orientation week. Um, with that, it looked like us going to engineering and getting edge cuts. I still have my undercut and it is a little wonky, but thank you so much, Sophia. <laughs> So events like that and also knowing um, and saying to faculties that we are here to support you. So whether that's event planning, whether you want to do a collaboration, for example, I know Clark Hall put uh, stickers on Kogro Cups, um, just kind of being open and being able to have that uh, connection there. Uh, I'll Michelle uh, a little bit. I think it's about ensuring that open communication piece is always there. I think that we're able to, you know, offer our um, experience and offer, you know, our expertise or any help in any you know, way, shape, or form to the other faculty societies, and it's something that we want to be um, very vehement about. I think that's having that open dialogue with them to say, you know, hey, our office doors are open, or hey, you know, shoot us an email, and we'll be able to help you. And, you know, if we can in particular, we could always redirect you to, to someone that can. I think a lot of the interfaculty collaboration can also be done through assembly. We think of the transparency piece that assembly brings not only through the reports that we're all able to share with one another, but a lot of through the assembly committees that we're able to all collaborate on. There are a couple new ones this year, such as the SVPR Interfaculty Coalition. There is a housing task force, which we also have underneath as an assembly committee, but it also extends to things such as teaching awards. It goes to the SAF. It goes to equity grants that fall underneath the sick. There are a variety of ways in which, you know, we're able to have this open dialogue and open discussion with one another and, you know, share ideas, amplify one another and, um, be, you know, be that support system for one another and student government. Perfect. Um, so what are some of the main challenges you foresee for this year and how do you plan to address them? So I think some of the challenges that um, are very specific to my portfolio this year is um, bringing back or should I say kind of um, bringing into fruition to long standing projects, which would be the Queen's Pub and also the Alma Mater Society, Alma Mater Society Media Center, excuse me there. So with that, it's kind of bringing the Queen's Pub, which is a service that hasn't been run for quite a few years, and bringing it back into the new JDUC building, which it will be completely different. It'll have its own fully stocked kitchen. Um, it will also have a patio as well. So it's kind of like planning for the logistic changes there, getting students ready for hiring, all the fun stuff there that I'm honestly really excited about, as well as I have such an amazing team that I work with, um, part of the AMS. So really excited to see their ideas and also 
hear students' input. What would you like to see in the new pub, for example? And then also for the All Matters Society Media Center coming up, um, which is, like I said before, the amalgamation of Studio Q and Printing and Copying Center, uh, kind of seeing how that new service would work. I think it's an amazing opportunity that we're able to give students that one-stop shop, but then it's also finding out what do students like? How can we best cater to them? So those are kind of two things that I can see um, upcoming in the year, but I'm really excited to deal with it. That's so Thank cool. You. Wait, quick question. Um, when's yes. the JDOC renovation <laughs> going to be done? I feel like everyone wants to know that. Um, so in discussions with the contractors, we have been given the date that the JDOC will be done as of May 2024. So as this academic year ceases and the summer term begins, um, that is our ideal. And that's what we've been told um, by the contractors and the developers. We're very excited to see the JDOC come to fruition because I don't know if you've seen a couple of the plans they have in place, but it's going to be incredible and it's going to be really, really great to I think have that student hub of, you know, like, like well, I suppose student life out back on campus. All right, perfect. Um, so do you have any advice for the incoming class or people who are just starting their journey at Queen's? So mine, I think, would be live in the moment and soak up all the experiences that you have. Queen's is such an amazing journey and such a wild ride. Enjoy the good, the bad, the medium, the ugly. Um, you're going to have so much fun. And even if you feel right now that you know you're overwhelmed coming to first year is honestly quite a big change and quite scary know that you also have some amazing support systems you'll meet some amazing people and get involved with something that you know you could really love and maybe you could pursue for a future career okay i'll go off michelle's a little bit because i think she did the words right out of my mouth and i know it sounds very cliche but i think it's to stop and smell the roses I, th- I I can see Michelle's face. She's not very happy. I use those exact words. Um, I think of like in my in my first year, for instance, I think of like residence move-in day. Some of the best advice I got as an incoming student was to keep my res door open. You know, if I'm just sitting there like hanging out and doing homework or I'm just sitting there, you know, listening to music. Um, a piece of advice I got from the two people who had lived in that room before me was, you know, keep your door open and you'd be surprised about the amount of people who kind of knock and walk by because everyone's looking for, you know, these kind of connections and this community building. And there's so many ways that you can do it, but oftentimes it's kind of hard to take that first step. So like Michelle said, it's, you know, going out to these club fairs and exploring the opportunities there. And it's, you know, on your res floor the next time, you know, you're in your communal space, it's striking up a conversation with someone who you may not have spoken to all that much because maybe they live on the other side. Um, I remember you know, my first year when the two girls who'd lived in the room before me came over and they said, you know, we're in our fourth year now and you would not believe how quickly this goes by. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I have four years, like, I suppose now five. How quick can it really be? And I sit here now, you know, four years later and think about how truly quickly that it does. So I think it's like taking in all the experiences you have and you know, building that community for yourself and joining those around you because the opportunities here are absolutely endless. And there's always something, I think, for everyone. It's something that, you know, we're very proud of to be part of an institution that has that. So enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much. That's some really great advice. Thank you. Um, So as we come to the end of our interview now, is there any final words you want to share? Any social medias you want to plug? 
Uh, I suppose for social media, the kind of um, highway of information that the AMS has is our Instagram page. So that's queens underscore AMS. You're able to find all of our adjacent social medias through there for the services and the commissions, but you're able to get that overarching um, kind of like information on our Instagram page. We highly recommend checking that out. In terms of any last words, I mean, thank you very much for having us and inviting us to the studio. Um, It's incredible. Yeah, I guess some of our other last words are thank you so much for having us. It's honestly really cool in here. Um, In my five years now, oof, (laughs) I haven't been in here. So it's really amazing to kind of see, you know, the history and also see all the cool recording stuff. I know you guys are listening and you don't get to see this, but I guess check out CFRC as well. They're pretty cool. All right. Thank you all so much for coming in. Um, Once again, that was Michelle and Victoria with the AMS talking with me. Um, To listen to the full interview, make sure to check out our podcast uh, today in VGK on both Spotify and Apple Music. Thank you so much. It is now time for your CFRC weather forecast. Monday, September 18th, a mix of sun and cloud with a 40% chance of showers, a high of 21 and a low of 7 degrees. Tuesday, September 19th, also a mix of sun and cloud with a 30% chance of showers and also a low of 7 degrees. No rain, however, on Wednesday, September the 20th, but some cloudy periods with a mix of sun and cloud, a high of 21 and a low of 9 degrees at night. On Thursday, September 21st, you can also expect a mix of sun and clouds with a high of 22 degrees and a low of 9 degrees at night. This is Kat bringing you the Kingston Traffic Report. On Coronation Boulevard at the CN Rail Crossing, it will be closed September 18th at 7pm to September 20th at 7am for CN Rail to upgrade the signals at this crossing. On King Street from Place to Arms, all the way to the Tragically Hip Way, it will be closed from September 21st at 12.01 a.m. to September 23rd at 2 a.m. for events at the Leon Centre. Market Street from Ontario to King will be closed September 17th from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. for the City of Kingston Intercultural Arts Festival. Queen Mary Road from Bath to Notch Hill will be closed until September 22nd at 5.30 p.m. for the Utilities Kingston Nets Project. Sydenham Street from Queen to Princess will be closed until October 12th for downtown Kingston activations. And now we're going to turn to expected delays. On Princess Street from Collins Bay to Bay Ridge, expect delays all the way until October 31st for the construction of new sidewalks and traffic signals along Princess Street. Please note that one lane of traffic will be maintained in each direction at all times on Princess Street. On Sir John A. McDonald Boulevard, at Johnson, expect delays for the installation of a new high-pressure gas line for Utilities Kingston. This was Kat bringing you the Kingston Traffic Report. I hope you all have a great week. Now it's time for the CFRC Community Concert and Events Calendar for September 18th through September 24th. If you have an event you would like covered on our website or in our news programming, contact us via cfrc.ca today. Catch band The Reed Effect September 18th at 8pm through 11pm performing live music at the mansion. 
On September 19th, catch 10-foot pole, drunk tank, the Beta 58s, and Master Nate and the Reprobates at the Broom Factory at 7.30 for a great indie rock show. The show is presented by KPP Concerts, and tickets are $20. Tom's Tuesday Afternoon Happy Hour Jam continues at the club RCHA on the 19th with Open Jam with Tom Savage. The show begins at 4.30 and is free. Catch Chris Jackson at Blue Martini from 6.30 to 9.30, also on the 19th. You never know who will join Chris on stage, but be prepared to be entertained as he delivers some amazing classic rock favorites. On Wednesday, September 20th, it's Comedy Night at Hair of the Dog. You can get tickets online now, and it starts at 7.30 at Hair of the Dog Barber and Pub, 390 King Street East. On September 21st, popular band Billy Talent comes to Kingston. Secure your spot at the Leon Center Show, and let's rock it together. Tickets are still available online through Ticketmaster. That same night, catch Spencer Spenny Rice at the Royal Tavern 2.0, playing some covers and possibly some comedy for free. If you're over on Wolf Island on the 21st, you can catch a free show by jazz singer Melissa Lauren from 7.30 to 8.30 at Hotel Wolf Island. Star of RuPaul's Drag Race Season 14, Gorgeous, joins Kingston drag favorites for a one-night-only show at the Hello Gorgeous Drag Show. The show will take place at Ale House from 8 to 11 on the 21st, and tickets are $50. Wolf Island Equinox Festival begins. Three days of music, art, and abundance, featuring Kyoko Odoga, The Soul Motivators, Stephen Fearing, and Jason Wilson Ashara, beginning on Friday, September 22nd at Hotel Wolf Island. The event is no minors, and $125 gets you all access passes. However, admission varies for individual dates and locations, but it's set to be a fantastic music festival on Wolf Island. Acoustic Fridays, Tegan McLaren, Friday, September 22nd, at Kirkpatrick's, playing a free show from 5 to 8 p.m. Also free is Paula Woodband, Friday, September 22nd, at the Royal Tavern 2.0. On the 23rd, Keith Glass Band is performing live at Leopard Frog Bar near Battersea. This all-ages event begins at 8 p.m. Message or email to reserve tickets and get a map at leopardfrogfarm at gmail.com. For a $30 ticket, includes great music in a historic Battersea barn, as well as a cup of hot cider. Forever Seeger, the musical sensation that has been wowing Bob Seeger fans across North America, is coming to the Grand Theater. On September 23rd, tickets are still available between $50 and $55 online. It is all ages and begins at 7.30. On September 24th, Marion Drexler Band puts on a show featuring rhythm, blues, rock, pop, country, and jazz influences, an all-ages show at Spearhead Brewery. As well, check out Quirks of Human Nature, an evening of poetry, music, and storytelling on Monday, September 25th at the Royal Tavern 2.0. And those are your concerts from the 18th to the 24th. For more information, always check out cfrc.ca. Thank you for tuning in to CFRC's local news programming. To revisit episodes of Today in YGK and hear more from some of our guests, be sure to head to our podcast network at podcast.cfrc.ca. Today in YGK is brought to you by the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Local Journalism Initiative, Queen's University Career Services, and What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street. Be sure to stay tuned for more CFRC programming coming up next. 
What'll I Wear offers the best in vintage, funky, one-of-a-kind treasures, clothing, accessories, and a fabulous selection of jewels, vintage and new. Find the cutest purse, the most dashing of hats and sunglasses, everything to complete your individual look. What'll I Wear has it all. They can dress you from top to bottom. Find your new fashion fave at What'll I Wear at 732 Princess Street in Kingston. Visit their new location and follow them on Facebook to keep up to date with what's in store at What'll I Wear. Dear listeners, as you may have heard, Meta, which owns Instagram and Facebook, is blocking Canadian access to all content created by news providers, including this radio station, in response to the Online Broadcasting Act. Access to local news and information matters to everyone, and while radio stations use their airwaves to keep you informed, we also use social media to share local news, events, and initiatives, and even content about our upcoming programming. We need you to write your MP and convey your concerns. Learn more and find a letter template for your MP on our website, cfrc.ca. Thank you for your support. 